Hello, everybody, and welcome to another E5 podcast. I am one of your hosts. My name is Paul Meenan. Thank you very much for joining us. And I'm joined by my tag team partners, not the Legion of Doom, but my tag team partners in Demolition. Introduce yourself. Hello there. It's David Watts, a.k.a. Sparky Ninja. And the other one? Hello, I'm JW. Hey. And lads, we are joined today by an extra, extra special chap who we've known for some time, and we've known his entire family for some time. Please introduce yourself, sir. I'm Ian Arbuckle. I'm the managing director of Linian. We make Linian fire clips. Linian fire clips. And I happen to have in my drawer somewhere a bag of Linian fire clips. If I can remember what drawer I put them in. I've got a shelf. I've got a bag of Linian fire clips right here. So we have another manufacturer on, chaps. And we don't, you're not sponsoring us, just so that everybody is clear, you are not sponsoring this podcast um but we thought we'd, we'd get on other manufacturers talk about really important subjects and um fire safety premature collapse whatever you want to call it um it's really important and i think especially in these times when people aren't maybe necessarily in their places of work um it's very difficult to maintain and service uh, and ensure safety because of the social distancing there are a lot of guys out there maintaining. They may be by themselves. Um, you know, and there are cases of fires. We know that it's it's in the news. Um, so if anything, there's more consideration that we need to think of. And I think it's also fair to say that every single plan and risk assessment that you've got out there, nobody, nobody considered what's going on at the moment um, contractually. I definitely, without a doubt, think that this coronavirus nasty thing is a force majeure i'm not saying it's an act of god but it's something that maybe we didn't predict or we maybe were flippant or hesitant in predicting it and mitigating accordingly um now we're slap bang in the middle of a a lockdown that doesn't seem to be ending anytime so we thought we'd talk about um fire clips but before we do ian if you could maybe just tell us about yourself your background why you set up the company go for it yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, I'm an electrician to trade. Uh, I left school at 17. I did my apprenticeship in Scotland, the SVQ Level 3. Um, qualified, I uh, worked as an electrician and became a project manager. I went to night school, I did my engineering qualification. I became a consulting engineer doing um, electrical design, mostly in, in healthcare. Um, and uh, yeah, I did that up until 2015. Um, whilst all that was happening in my life, my, my father, very clever man, invented the original Linian fire clip and he sold it through, through his wee wholesalers um, in, in Glasgow. And in 2015, my sister, Lynn, and I, uh, Lynn and Ian, um, we, we came together um, with Lynn's experience in sales and the construction industry and we decided to um, take the product to market. It wasn't just off the back of let's start a business and, and do this as you as you guys know. Um we were we were kinda looking for something we could do that we could um you know potentially make a difference um, and we knew that our dad had this product sitting there as well it was 2015 which is around about the time of bs 7671 um amendment 3 um coming out with regards to premature collapse of cable um and and things like that and we realized that this little fire alarm clip that my, my dad had been selling could be a potential solution to for contractors to use um with that regulation change so we thought we we would give it a go, um, and and we did we did give it a go. Yeah, six months later, I, I left my job as a senior engineer with a company called Rubka in Glasgow, and uh, Lynn left her job, and we have been doing it ever since. And our parents work with us as well. We are a family business, so mum and dad are still involved. Uh, you've 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 seen them at trade shows and things like that. So, uh, and here we are today. Oh. So, um, family business, which I love, um, British company, which I also love, um, forgive me for saying this, but I've always said it. I will always, 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 uh, buy British. I'm a big fan of supporting British economy, British contractors. I genuinely do believe that, uh, in a global economy now more than ever is, is a time to keep your money local, stimulate your local economy look after your local businesses. I've always been a big fan of that. Maybe that's just because I'm old fashioned, um, 
but yeah so has it been worth it have you enjoyed the journey or has it been a tumultuous one i think i think it's got its challenges like anybody in any kind of job will tell you um but you know ultimately it's very rewarding um to see to see your product being out there and being used in practice in the market and getting the feedback that we get on the product that is is good at what it does is one of the best products to be to be using for this job um but you know apart from that um it, it can be it can be stressful i'm not i'm not going to lie um i think everybody that runs a business will tell that to you but as long as you live your life the right way um and you try to remain positive and do the right thing and be a good person and you've got on okay, and I seem to be getting on okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, so just for those listening, because this is obviously a an audible podcast, but everybody's watching on YouTube. Hello, everyone on YouTube. Everybody asked so they could see us talking and see us with different stuff. Um, the, the regulation you spoke about earlier on, um, 4211201, which is a UK-specific in Amendment 3, which was the yellow book, which is sat on a shelf behind me, um, it said, within domestic households, premises, consumer units, and switchgear assemblies, shall comply with a BSEN standard that should have their enclosure manufactured from non-combustible material. Um, but then there was also a regulation 52111, and it said wiring systems in escape routes shall be supported so that they will not be liable to premature collapse in the event of fire. And is it right to say, Dave and John, that the, the shit hit the fan when that... Everyone kicked off massively when that happened. Really? I don't know. I don't think, I don't think the industry did enough when it happened, really. Do you know, I, I think I, the amount of arguments I saw on social media and people going, oh, this is stupid, this is stupid, oh, this is just dumb, this is, who's going to pay for it, who's going to pay for it? And I used to sit, I used to sit and, and, and think, if you're seriously moaning about steel tire apps or some sort of fire clip and the cost of that, then your whole business model is F-U-C-K'd as far as I'm concerned, because it was just awful. And, and that's probably my, I'm sounding quite privileged now because my background's railway, London Underground. Um, yeah. So we learned from, you know, when many, many people died at King's Cross about premature collapse and the importance of safety to firemen and all the rest of it. But I just thought it was awful. The 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 really shitey attitude that came out of a lot of sparks over this. I mean, John, it still your... comes out. It still comes out now. It does. It yeah, out. I mean, there's one uh, one area that I see, which is blocks of flats. And a lot of them they have had the lighting and the community areas replaced. And in the past, it was you just done with like plastic mini trunking and other stuff. And the self sticky stuff. stuff. Yeah. And I've even seen it when it was just literally just the sticky stuff on its own with no screws. So obviously that's going to fall down in like two seconds. Or one or two conservative screws. Yeah. So that yes. kind of stuff is surprisingly common. And it is. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, it's all crap. And it was crap even when it was put in and when it allegedly yeah. applied. It's not as if it suddenly got got this way. It was it was rubbish anyway. It's just it was done cheaply down to the lowest price. Do you know what, John? You've hit a nail on the head there because I, I, years ago, I mean, probably around the 2001 to 2003, I worked in a, quite a lot of social houses and stuff doing bits and bobs, and I saw so many homes rewired in, in MT2, so many houses wired in surface mini trunking because it was the old concrete with the old mm. imperial conduits buried in the concrete. And rather than reuse them or try and fish cables, it was cheaper and more efficient. Everything surface, everything yeah. surface. And, and what Dave said was bang on one or two precarious screws. And it was enough for the guy to walk away. And these were in kitchens. So these sticky back trunkings that they were using, they'd be peeling off, warping, doing all sorts of shenanigans. Uh, and I bet I'd love to see the statistics for councils on go backs to houses where the, the, the cause has been trunking collapse, cable sagging. I'd love to see if they ever collected those statistics. What do you think, Dave? Well, again, um, when I was on the tools in the local authority, we were seeing this. We were seeing contractors all fighting for the contracts. And it wouldn't always be the cheapest, but it would be one of the cheapest couple. Um, and the work would always be surface, surface, quick, bish, bash. Uh, we had blocks of flats all wired in MI. Yeah. Con concrete walls, concrete ceilings. And I had to go to a wholesaler and I, I, tried, I tried to get, you know, this um, dado trunking. So it's like a, 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 or like a cornice trunking, which goes around the perimeter of the ceiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks like a cornice, yeah. but it's actually trunking. So I had to try and spec all that. Uh, but and then the, everything dropping down from those or across from those was just sticky, bat, sticky stuff. That's what the contractors ended up going in with. And as, and as you say, the when you come to then fix it, it is just 
couple for consideration, really. Yeah, that's not great, is it? That's not well, great. I mean, I've just rewired my house and I, I put two 20 mil conduits to each socket, uh, two 20 mil conduits to each light because I try and future proof it for the next bloke. Even under the floor, I had this OCD when I was rewiring my house. So I actually have this it is a linear fire clip for you. This is a 25 mil one. So I've got the 20 mil conduit version. And what I've done is underneath my floor, I've actually drilled, fixed it. And then I use this as a hanger for my comms, my cat fives. Mm. That way they're not lying on the floor. Um, do you want to show you? I didn't want to clip them all, so I just stuck this in and made a nice little straight cable way. So I could just hang two or three data cables underneath the joist. And, that, and that's what I did. Um, yeah, they got, they got some really good use. I mean, this is underneath the floor of a bungalow. I didn't need to, but I just found that this had a use of creating a nice little um, cable way that was, you know, out of sight, under a floor, yeah. rather than having mice climbing all over them and trying to strip the cable for insulation for their nests. You know, it doesn't have to be above you. It can be underneath you as well, and just a good practice to to um, to use them for. But that's just my personal view. Um, but you a good point there, Paul, um, is that you know you've hit the nail on the head, so to speak, in terms of you need to you need to use your common sense when it comes to when it comes to these things. And I know that's a bad word these days, but you know. Our point of view is that if there's any any kind of risk of anything collapsing, regardless of what, whose products you use, it's your responsibility as an engineer to make sure that it doesn't. Um, but that also goes for, um, as you say, you're using steel conduits to go down to your sockets in your houses for um, a variety of reasons, but accessibility, protection, all of these things that you're that you're, that you're doing it for, it's, it to me is is common sense and and. Um, there's an old-fashioned engineering mentality whereby you know you, you you do your best job all the time, and an engineer's an engineer. It doesn't matter what your trade is. If you know if you're an electrical engineer and you're given some structural calcs to do, suck it up and go on with it. Um, and I think that's kind of dying out a little bit, and that's what we're seeing. And and you know these trunkings get flung everywhere and, and all that sort of stuff, and it's sad. It's so it's the same way for things like software. You know, I can spend half an hour teaching a guy how to do a cable calculation, and some idiot in the room will go, I've got an app that does that. You're just disconnecting from actual competence with all that. Yeah. Listen, I get the hump when I see countersunk screws used on trunking. Mm. I, I'm, I've got an OCD for the right screw, the right fixing. If I see three or four different types of screws or, or heads, I, I, I absolutely go ape. You know, for me, it's pan head or mushroom screws with penny washers if you want to ensure you get a nice flat fix in. I fed up with seeing trunking fixed to a wall, countersuck screw and a red plug, and you just see the plastics holding on just a little bit, thinking I could put a, I could put something behind that and quickly rip that off. Um, the quality doesn't seem to almost want to exist with some installers nowadays of, of systems, trunking systems. But what, what annoys me the most is, um, and I'm going to reference two things, you guys can talk about them, uh, Stevenage. 2005 tower block Aracourt. Aracourt. yeah so there's a fire um i believe it was a tea light or something melted through the television tea light on the tv that's yeah. it um 3 a.m one one of the two occupants woke up tried to put it out um yeah the other one remained asleep and they died in their bed uh two of the firefighters who attended from the nearby station were killed so uh, there's two Miller and warnham yeah so two of them dead Mm -hmm. And it was, it, again, it was, uh, if anyone's listening, if you look on our Instagram page, we do actually have pictures from the uh, report, which is all publicly available information. Um, and it's definitely worth a read because there is too many people argue about the use of fire rated fixings and what does it define and all the rest of it. We can go into that in a bit. Um, but pictures of cables hanging around the ceilings or on the edges of rooms and stuff and there was a lot of debate when this reg came out um it's now 521 11 in the current edition and they changed the wording so it's uh 521-10-202 wiring systems shall be supported in such a way they'll not be liable to collapse in the event of a fire now some people may say well why is it changed from emergency escape routes to everywhere because it yep. is everywhere fast forward five years Shirley Towers, Southampton, 2010. Another fire, more firemen dead. So we evidently didn't listen. So you've got at least four firemen who are dead because cables wrapped around their breathing apparatus. Um, they couldn't see, they couldn't escape, and tragedy for four people's families dead. And yet I find it sickening to my core 
that people argue over the application. I do. It, it absolutely boils my blood pressure, to be honest with you. Um, what's your views? Dave, you've just done... Um... <laughs> You're going to ask me my views. Well, all right. I'm going to. I'll rephrase. I, I, I spent ninety minutes talking about this. It's probably best to go so, somewhere else. Oh, Dave, but... come on, Dave. <laughs> hang on a second. You've ruined. You've ruined the podcast. So, for those listening, Sparky yeah. Ninja has just last week done a webinar on premature collapse with the father of Ninja. It's ninety minutes, and it's most certainly worth uh, looking at as far as good CPD. So, Dave, go, go for it. Condensed summary of what you discussed and your thoughts and views on this. All right. Beginning, middle and end. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you've already mentioned Shirley Towers and Harrowcourt. There's also Atherson on Stour as the three key scenarios where coroners wrote the Rule 43 letter describing the wiring systems being an actual key culprit or even the cause of death for one or two of the firefighters involved. In the Atherson on Stour fire where four firefighters were killed where the ceiling collapsed, Obviously, they don't know if they suffocated from lack of oxygen from the BA tank or if they died from the roof collapse, but about 20 other firefighters I got out said collapsing cables, wiring, luminaires and all sorts slowed down their escape. And the point of the regulation was to help firefighters escape from firefighting activities. It's written in guidance notes 5 that this is a firefighting activity. The problem we've got is we've got idiots in our industry that are saying, oh no, it's about escape of buildings. So it's perfectly okay if we have plasterboard ceilings that hold up for 20 to 30 minutes, as long as we can get out of the building. The point of the regulation is to ensure that when firefighters go into a building, the wiring systems that are there will be up for the duration of their firefighting activity and will not inhibit their escape from the building because it could take 10 seconds or so under a, I don't know, backdraft or some kind of flashover for a firefighter to die, just like what happened to firefighter Warnham. There you go. What was the, sorry, rule, was it coroner's rule 40? Rule 43 letters, where a coroner concludes that something created or can be part of the cause of the fatality. Yeah. And there were coroner letters, coroner's letters written after all three, and after the third one, all of it was collected up and it went pushed to the building regulations, which then concluded with the Rowan regulation being introduced in 2015. All about helping firefighters escape from firefighting activities and not for owners or people in a property escaping a fire. It's about firefighters escaping from firefighting activities. Because so that's what's killed them. So we've kind of screwed uh, we've kind of screwed that up then, haven't we, really? Well it's, it's probably relevant that, you know, during this time scale of these incidents happening, firefighters in the UK were issued with special cutters, special cutters for cutting cutters, themselves. Cutters, little slips on their BA tank to their helmets. Yeah, swimming techniques to get themselves out of pools of mm -hmm. cables, etc. And this is all just because people aren't fixing cables. Well, here's correctly. the scenario. Here's the scenario, right? Codebreaker, codebreaker. Our, our industry experts are obviously trying to give us some advice on this. The codebreaker says this is a C2 observation, but it's a C3 if we can conclude that entanglement is not likely. But if you listen to the actual podcast, uh, sorry, the webinar that I did with, with my father, who was an 18-year career station station of commander, basically firefighters don't go in a building and go across a room to the next door in that room. They actually go around the room. They actually feel. They can't see. Electricians aren't trained to be able to determine and assess risk for how firefighters fight and tackle fires. So we cannot actually look at wiring systems and determine the suitability for premature collapse will or will not result in entanglement if we don't know how firefighters tackle fires. Yeah, goes on to the plasterboard scenario. Okay, uh, we say plasterboard ceilings are absolutely fine, but first thing that you can actually do in a fire is push water onto the ceiling to, to I think he called it dancing angels, which is where you have a flashover. This is where you introduce oxygen to the fire and the, and the room can go upwards of more than 800 degrees very easily. So they throw fire in there to push that back. You've got a warm ceiling, you've got a plasterboard ceiling, that ceiling will end up coming down in the majority of fires. And cables will come down if they're just resting on top of them. It's quite common to hear that, you know, cables within a plasterboard ceiling, or it's 30 minute rated um, uh, plasterboard as well. Um, uh, 30 minutes is, is, is nothing. Uh, who can possibly determine when a firefighter is going to enter the, a building? During yeah, the, the, the discussions... 
what you got to remember is obviously, you know, you have a fire, you have a shout, you have people evacuate. The fire authorities have to arrive. They then have to assess risk. It's always dynamic. They've got to determine if there's a life to be saved. And sometimes they've got to get the water. They cannot get into a property for 20 to 30 minutes in some cases. You know, and if so you when... look at this... Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, if you look at the... Um... If you speak to any plasterboard or, or you know, timber construction manufacturer, they will tell you that the 30-minute waiting on the plasterboard isn't 30 minutes. 30 minutes is how long it takes for the, the, the fire to consume the void above the plasterboard. The plasterboard actually fails to a point where cables could collapse around about 23 minutes. So a lot of that time, the fire brigade haven't even arrived before those, the, the cables and the plasterboard are compromised. But again, I mean, the plasterboard thing really is they try to throw that to help us think about escaping from a fire. Firefighters mm. will douse ceilings and they will come down. So where do we get then, forgive my silly, stupid approach here, but so there is a perception in our industry that um, in, in most construction is if you're building a new room and you're not using traditional block technique, for instance, mm. um, where you can define the thickness and type of blocks, you would go with a single skim or a double skim of plasterboard. And that would give you or afford you 30 or 60 minutes fire resist, not resilience, uh, compartmentation, whatever term you yeah, want to use. That's, that's compartmentation to stop that fire spreading to the next building that will not that will not tolerate the actual firefighting activity, which is a firefighter spraying yeah. water onto that surface. Right. That I get that. I totally get um, because the minute you put a jet hose on it, it will blast through it. Um, I've seen loads of. Uh, student accommodations being built over the years where they're effectively a bit of wooden stud and plasterboard mm -hmm. either side and that's it on every single floor they're nothing which is why then neighbors complain and end up paying for insulation to be putting in and sound barriers and soundproofing and um for years fire has always fascinated me um going all the way back to london underground uh, 1987 um the king's cross fire which killed i think it's 31 32 people there was a, a qc called fennel desmond fennel who wrote the fennel report and basically said to london underground you are utter rubbish at everything and you need to improve and since then london underground it's fair to say have spent billions leading mm -hmm. the world in fire technology um and a lot of the standards and the testing that they've done um, has pretty much created an, an environment where, you know, I mean, recent terrorist attacks, the, you know, the tunnels took the blast, the cables took the blast, uh, the trains, you know, I'm, I'm not saying they're blast resistant, but from a fire propagation, they, they did pretty darn good. Um, mm -hmm. You fast forward a few years later, every, they increased the standards. I mean, I was working on Shippers Bush and they introduced a standard 1084 fire performance of materials and that, Every single cable we were using failed the performance criteria. And the performance criteria was like uh, smoke emission, uh, ash, ash drop test, um, toxic fume test and chemical emissions. And you had to take a, like a two meter length cable. You had to then subject it to intense flame um, for at least a minute or two and then see what the results were. And there'd be all these devices that would measure and monitor it. Um, because basically these cables, they wanted them as fireproof as possible um, to, to an nth degree where yeah, they're probably it is probably the leading standard in the world or it was one of the leading standards in the world for fire performance technology and how to assess it and how to improve it. And I know, Ian, you've gone through this with your your cables, haven't you? Yeah, we have. We've, done, we've gone through it with the clips. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, if you want to see your products used on London Underground, you have to adhere to the standards there. I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of their light years ahead um, on the London Underground standards, as far as I'm concerned. Um, to take the the detailed look that they took at our product um, in order to um, look at the approval was was incredible. You mentioned smoke emissions there. Um, I mean, it's a tiny little cable clip, you know, um, but yeah, we... we we still underwent the testing um, to make sure that there was no toxic fumes or, or um, excessive levels of smoke emitted from the product when it was being um, burned in a fire. Um, so that test itself, for our product anyway, showed that um, for our product to have any kind of impact on that in, a, in a, an underground tunnel um, environment, 
you would have to have something, I think it was something like three or four hundred clips within a, a 10 centimetre by 10 centimetre space. So, um, you know, the, the safety elements there, but there are some materials out there where a very small section of it burning could potentially emit toxic materials that could potentially potentially be fatal to dozens of people, you know. So having these standards in place at the level of stringency that they've actually got at the moment is massively important, and they are light years ahead, like you say. Do you know what I find amazing is if you, anyone gets a chance to download the standard, it's called S1-085, and I have never seen a, a, a railway standard where they will quote you um, a a clause for, say, uh, a cable. So they'll, co- they'll quote a cable standard, um, and I don't know, let's just say, let me pick a standard here, um, 6853 or something like that. They will then create a subtable, and the requirements of that cable for fire performance, they then put their own standard requirements, which is pretty much two to three times mm-hmm. what the British standard is. So and I've never read a standard. I've spoke. They have a, a materials technology guru who's been there for decades, and he's well, a somebody, genius on fire performance. Somebody must have obviously post King's Cross gone in there, like BRE do, simulated the conditions. Yeah, London Underground and just determined the new. Yeah, and just determined the higher standard test conditions to meet. London Underground used to have something called an engineering directorate, and it was at the time. Like the best minds, the best engineers, they've actually got rid of them because they didn't deem them cost efficient. But in the time that they had that that galactic empire of engineering excellence, um, they'd spent a lot of money doing all their own testing and defining their own criteria. So they'd look at the results. They'd go to these factories and go, I could see smoke off of that. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. And this is how weird it is. This standard actually has a smoke emission criteria for floors in tunnels and in stations. How mad is that? So if you pour fuel on, on a floor, they've got then a criteria for how much smoke that floor surface is allowed to give off, never mind with the accelerant. And this is why if anyone who's worked in underground who's listened to this will, will be able to tell you now, other than stuff that you bring in and out of the station, the fabric, the cabling, um, most of the products are about as robust and fire rated as you could ever get which is why it costs you 1400 pounds for a light fitting and you know hundreds of pounds for a drummer cable and it's it's off the charts and it, and I, I think it's fair to say as well you become complacent because that becomes your default i mean when we were using connector blocks we weren't using connector blocks we were using porcelain blocks yeah plastic connector blocks were banned porcelain blocks fixed base in a four before before galvanized junction box that's what you used conduits passing through wall intumescent mastics you know this stuff was being used 15 20 years ago on london underground now people are doing flats and having to put those fire seal type things behind their socket boxes and going why am i doing this how do i comply to building regulations so that i think there's a lot of fire education that's missing from the electrical trade and i find it quite exciting that people are debating this I think I, I do. I find it really good that people are talking yeah. and engaging. Unfortunately, wish... though, a lot a lot of people who argue it or debate it don't like anything that results in change to the norm. And I've got absolutely no problem with someone challenging or opposing something as long as they can then provide a reference, provide a resource, provide an article, provide something. But a lot um, of people are still just objecting to a lot of these requirements, a lot of these things, without actually providing any kind of argument for it. I have one. So I I generally would say to those people, you're an uneducated twat. Shut up. And I'm a client, okay? And if a contractor comes to me and I say, what fixings are you using? And they say, I'm using plastic screws and a plug and tie wraps. You're an uneducated twat. Um, Now, I'll be nice to them and suggest that they use the appropriate fire-rated fixings, um and all the rest of it but for the ones that are arguing over it people's lives man people's families this isn't a heartstring tugging exercise this is what you said earlier on ian common sense and we know common sense in the united kingdom is not common anymore 
It just isn't common. And this for me is an engineering logic. If we need to protect the firefighters, and again, and I will clarify this, for those thinking, oh, you're just being an arsehole. When we select and erect any electrical installation correctly, taking consideration its intended use, the external influences, and what the end goals are, we should always consider its operational use. And including, worst case scenario, there is an external influence of fire. In, in places of high risk, tower blocks, railway stations, we should, by logic and default, be going, if there is a fire and there's someone needs to be rescued or there are firefighters in there, we should take all reasonable steps to protect. I cringe when I hear people say, yeah, well, I might just stick some band round. Just stick a bit of banding round it, that'll do. Really? Really? You can't use, um, and, and I'm going to open up the debate on the plastic plug and screw, you can't use them on London Underground. Unless you're fixing, the only time they're actually allowed is if you're fixing like a, a pamphlet thing to the wall. And that's only back of house areas, not public areas. Public areas, the only thing you can use is fire-rated chemfix and studs. And and they've got to be, um, uh, uh, no, you're not allowed any single point of failure. So you can't have just one mm. bracket going up and then a cantilever. That's single point of failure. You have to have trapeze style. Yeah. I'm not saying we do trapeze brackets, by the way, for domestic and above ceilings and all that. I just, we use some common sense. Um, for, for me, fire fixings of any form or just, well, let's, let's I tell you what, John, come on, you've got, you've got an, an electrical museum. Turnbuckle clips. Yeah. Years ago, were we not using metal clips? Yeah, that's exactly what we're using. Um, and we went plastic because we're cheap arseholes. Yeah. And we the thing is, in, at the time, the metal ones probably weren't actually that expensive because that's pretty much what everybody used. I mean, these days you can't actually, you can hardly find them because nobody makes them anymore. But at the time, they were probably quite cheap and they were just what everybody used because that's what <coughs> you found on the shelf. So, yeah. yeah. It was metal plugs as well. Metal, metal plugs existed a long time ago. We've come full circle. We've gone from metal to, to plastic, the influx of cheap plastic goods in the 80s probably drove that a little bit as well. And then the, it comes back round to, to, well, should be coming back round to, to using metal fixings now. Um, but you mentioned all-round bands and things like that. You know, the problem with these things is that they're, they're relatively untested. You know, um, when you buy, for say, all-round band and a screw and a fixing to put something into it, into a substrate, how do you know? How do you, how do you know that that's that that's going to do the job? I mean, have you sat down and worked out the weight of the cables? Have you sat down and worked out you know what's yeah. your combined um, stress on those fixings and on the band and what's the melting point of the band and you know and, and all these things as well? Mm. I know, and and this is the thing. I, I I see lots of people online that go, oh well, just stick one or two metal clips and you'll be fine. For me, develop your own best practice. So if you're going to be using plastic, it's the same with tie wrapping. People go, well, if you're going to use plastic types, make, you know, every one in four steel. No, make every other one bloody metal. You know, it's, it's, if, if, you're, if you're that squeezed on the cost, you have to look at bigger issues. And we've always said, and I've always said this, and I'll probably get shot by someone one day, that if you're arguing over this book, right, and the application of this book, you have a bigger problem internally. The problem is, Paul, people don't look at that, do they? They listen to the powers that be. What you mean, John Ward? No, it's John Ward, not a power. They listen be. to the NIC or the nappets <laughs> of this industry, <laughs> and then we get in, Sorry, we John. get we get information from them, which may not be conclusively the correct information. Uh, yeah, I think everybody's kind of developing. The one thing that the one thing that I genuinely believe is a problem, and I I have noticed this when these regs first came out, it was very cautious the advice they gave. If uh, and I, I'm not, I I'm not, that. I'm not, I I'm not that. singling him out. I'm not singling him out. But if I was in the role of Darren Staniforth, I wouldn't sit on on a, a live seminar that he does all around the country and and say, well, it all depends. I would actually, do you know what I would do? I'd say, fuck it, lads, don't argue. Use goddamn metal fixings. What's wrong with you? Because all you're doing is you're creating a good practice benchmark. If people don't but, want to think about it, take them up to that level of good practice. I should imagine there are consequences, though, from other shareholders or other nonsense. Well, that's where the electrical industry is financially biased yeah. um, in a negative way and a negative way that impacts industry best practice and the safety and well-being of the end users of electrical installations, which is why I think 
our industry, as you well know, has a major problem when it comes to uh, social responsibility for the end user. Well, it definitely does. I mean, we know we know that we, saying, you know, it? we we know that the out you know we know the advice given isn't given correctly in this case with this regulation. I've heard NIC guys say thirty minutes plasterboard. I've heard NAPIC guys talk about plastic rule plugs being absolutely acceptable in all scenarios. And in both cases, I could give them twenty minutes of my time and just turn them over. So yeah, I, the point the point is, electricians will listen to them, and that'll overall the regs book. That'll well, overall the that'll overall doing the work. It'll overall going into the root cause of that regulation, finding the BRE study, finding the Rule Forty Three letter, finding Shirley Towers, Atherton Tower, Heracle, yeah. and actually making a suitable decision by yourself. So fine, because Nabit said it's all right. Yeah, and, and also it's worthwhile suggesting to folk as well. Uh, we did do a podcast with the FIA the other week, we and the FIA guy highlighted a really interesting section of regs because he said, Will. yeah, well, uh, he said that the, if you look at a certain reg number, it refers to you will comply with 5839, and you look at 5839, it says you will comply with the wiring regs, but 5839 has had in it for a long time fire fixings. Yeah, it's, and in uh, fairness, they're far regulation, better. It's in Chapter 56, Safety Services, Regulation 560.9 or 10. Uh, it's, it's emergency lighting and it's fire alarm systems. I had the same thing earlier on on Facebook. A guy goes, I haven't done any ICR. There's no emergency lighting. I can't say anything because it's not to do with 7671. If there's no emergency lighting to the requirements of 5266, that's not compliance with 5266. And 7671, 560.9 says 5266 must be complied with. Mm-hmm. You know? But we're not just—we're not being smart enough with our AICRs. And we're not being smart enough with these regulations. No, because we're—I think we're te- we're teaching people to take it one step at a time. Yeah. The trouble is, he says we know, and and in fairness, probably Dave, there's an unconscious bias from us because we are spending vast volumes of time reading uh, an ordinate amount of standards, and we're kind of doing what some of the industry bodies are doing. And straight away, you think, well, how the hell do we tell Sparks this? But we, you do. You just have to lay it on the line. Again, Dave did a brilliant webinar, um, which I was part of, Future of the Wine Rigs, Amendment yeah. 1, Amendment 2, Amendment 3. But again, <coughs> the webinar I did on premature collapse, we had a room full of guys. The conversation at the end of the presentation went on for another 45 minutes. Then it carried on on Facebook. Then it carried on, and I'm getting comments through on Instagram and all sorts. People want to talk about this because they want <laughs> to find the right decisions to make to their clients. But you yeah. go to an exhibition, you pay to tickets to go and see someone on a stage with the NIC or whatever, they'll cover it for 10 minutes. That's it, move on. There's yeah. not, and there's not engagement, there's not discussion. And, it's, there's and, no it's, time. And, and the debate, I think, is the one thing that stimulates that the engineering reasoning, the engineering logic. So if I'm going to do, so one of the things I have at work, if I make a decision, to justify a selection erection benchmark I want to set, I have to justify it with a board of directors because there's going to be a cost impact. Now, luckily, I can justify it quite easily because I have the evidence available. And also, I want to set a precedent of best practice that says this will protect my installers, my passengers, my staff. Um, this is a robust installation. It's a good practice installation. I don't have instance where uh, I think it was... Uh, is it landed? No, on so anyone who's a railway geek, there was an incident where a cable fell off a bridge. It fell. It it was plastic tie wrapped. I think it's Landudno Junction, plastic tie wrapped. Um, it's on the Rail Accident Investigation um, Bureau website. Just type in cable and you'll come up with it. And basically, what it was was um, PVC tie wraps, UV faded. There's a surprise, and it was a DNO supply, and it was across the bridge and it was hanging down. And in the report, you can see all the pictures and the, the railway train came along with a pantograph, which collects the energy, grabbed hold of the cable, dragged it half a mile. It then broke the pan and then came ricocheting back. Cable snapped off at the head. It injured passengers on the platform and people on the bridge. Still alive, by the way. Luckily, nobody was electrocuted or any electric shock. Um, this then happened. Um, and long and short of it is, right at the end of it, there was this big national, you will go out and check all these bridges and all this malarkey, and a beautifully sarcastic note at the end from the author, who I know, um, basically said, just note, um, they put the cable back up using PVC tie wraps. They learnt nothing. nothing, nothing they learnt nothing. But from a precedent, injury occurred, advice was given from an independent body which can set, uh, which does set a tort, a precedent in law, 
mm. where if I go around and I, I had an incident on one of my railway bridges where the exact same thing happened. And I went and I put, lo everything was still tie wrapped. Those cables are never coming down ever, ever, period. You know, you're not, you're just not there. And unless their life expired and they're being ripped out, they're never coming down. Um, I learned from that and the cost was, you know, a little bit higher than going and doing plastic, but I justified it by using this report and, and assuring my business that that wouldn't be a point of failure because the operational disruption or the harm to passengers. And I think that's where that engineering logic using examples of these incidents, uh, tragically, people have to die for us. To so it goes, it goes back to the, the Rule 43 letters, isn't it, where coroners can write things to go through into legislations and codes. Um, and those Rule 43 letters can be Googled. You can read them. And, and they are actually issued to the JPL panel. And it effectively, very politely says, can you please do something about the next edition of the wiring rigs? Yeah, and the biggest issue with this one in particular, this wiring regulation, is we're confusing the point. And again, the point is protecting firefighters so they can escape from a firefighting activity. That's the point here. Because it's in the firefighting activity that the firefighters couldn't escape. Mm. You know, it was up in, uh, in Charlotte, you know, we had we had uh, Harrowcourt, we had firefighter Warner and um, Miller, one of them guys died instantly because of the flashover, but the other guy was found outside the flat and he had fire alarm cabling in the palm of his hand. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was found in the palm of his hand. We know what happened now. This is on Stour. And um, in the other one, the Shirley the, uh, Towers one, we had a, a team of firefighters go in and they took the right wall approach. So they went, hugged the right, they went up the first set of stairs. Another two went in to handle the hoses, and it was those two that died. When they opened up the doors and introduced oxygen, and they died on the stairs because of the cabling, inhibiting their ability to escape. When that when that temperature rises, yeah, they need to get out very very quickly. And if they're entangled, they can't escape. They collapse. They can then run out of air in the tank and they suffocate. Yeah, it's it's scary stuff. John, what's your thoughts on this? Sorry, we've been chit chatting away. Yeah, I mean that that webinar you did. I think. Uh, important point in that one was that when which i didn't know and lots of people probably don't know is that when five people go into a building and they're going down the stairs they're going down the stairs backwards with all this breathing apparatus on their back in the pitch black so if this cable's hanging down they're going to get tangled in them it's not a question of they might and in the actual regulations it says warning systems hanging across access rigorous routes may hinder evacuation firefighting activities well it's not may is it it will because if it's hanging down it's going to get tangled up in these people. It's not going to be a might possibly do it. So it's going to happen every single time. And then the other thing here is that you've got cables installed in or on steel containment systems are deemed to meet the requirements of this regulation. So you put your steel trunking up or whatever else. But crucially, it doesn't say what you're fixing the steel trunking or whatever to the ceiling with. So if you've put a load of steel trunking up on the ceiling and fixed it up with your plastic plugs and a little screw, it's not going to support anything. And when it gets hot, it's going to melt and fall down. So... Yeah. Yeah, in theory, putting in steel things is going to do it, but that's not the whole solution. You're going to have to think about how you're actually attaching that to the ceiling as well. Otherwise, it's just going to fall down with the rest of the cables like mm. it would have done anyhow. Mm. It's the plastic plugs that's the hardest thing, I think, for many, because a lot of, you know, the industry hasn't stood firm and actually, yeah, gone with that. Um, again, it must be due to some kind of conflict, some shareholder interest or something, but they've just not grown up there and said tests so that they weaken. It doesn't mean fire equals failure, but the tests showed that they weaken, one failed, and many were weakened. And as you just said, John, if you then apply a mass or weight to a weakened fixing, it will potentially fail or collapse. Yeah, I mean, in that webinar, you had the, that image of the, some tests that have been done with various cables on the ceiling of various types, and then some failed and some didn't fail. But the problem with those is it was just a single cable attached yeah. to the ceiling which, of course, weighs very little. And the weight, yeah, it was just a little bit of weight, and there wasn't yeah. a good fixing on that. There wasn't a lot of weight on them. But if you've got, like, a 100 by 100 trunking stuff full of cables, that's going to weigh sort of 50 times more than the little thin cable, but it could be yeah. fixed, theoretically, with a single screw, just like the cables were. So Yeah, so I've, I've, seen, I've seen a number of um, bad ideas from people trying to say, oh, no, 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 it's fine. They go, oh, is fire now hotter? This is now a problem, or they're saying... Oh, but if you know if the rule plugs are melting, they'd assess that before they go into the fire to tackle the fire. 
And I was like, firefighters, when they arrive at a fire, they're not going to suddenly take five minutes to just determine if the fire, you know, if the rule plugs are melting. That's not the strategy. So, uh, sorry, and I spoke over you. No, I was only going to say that we, um, we we did some testing on it as well, to be honest with you. Nothing to the extent that, obviously, you know, places like BRE and things like that can do, but yeah, um, holding a, looking at a plastic plug within a substrate, substrates can heat up a number of ways in a fire. They can heat up from below, mm-hmm. where the, you know, the heat is being directly applied to the, the plug, the screw, the substrate, and everything else, or they can heat up from from the other side, from the reverse side, whether it's the other side of a wall or, or ceiling or something like that, um, which can be just as quick as well, because often the plug's situated closer to that side than to the to the other side as well. So um, for me, I mean, okay, you know, let's put aside for one minute that, you know, we sell um, fire-resistant cable clips. This regulation's been brought in because plastic melts. So why are we saying that some plastic melts and some plastic doesn't? That that's the bit that I, that I understand. That's effectively what they're saying. You know, plastic cable clips melt, but if you put the plastic behind the cable, it doesn't magically doesn't melt, and it, it it just it makes it makes no sense for me. It comes back to if you're an engineer, you should be carrying out a risk assessment for every project that you are going to, no matter how big or how small, and if there's a risk that there's a, a, a cable or a piece of containment being attached by a plastic fixing of any means um, where it could, you know, potentially collapse on top of a firefighter, then don't do it. It's that simple. Don't do it. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, there are often external budgetary pressures, etc., which which force people into doing these things. It is, yeah. And, um, and I, just again, as you say, you know, if it can, we should. And this is where I go to, again, the code breaker, which does what it tries to do. It's given it a C2. And here's the thing. We don't want to suddenly turn this into a C2 because we don't want to now say wiring systems installations are now unsafe that were fine five years ago when I last visited your premises because I'm going to feel like a right idiot. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to see through this. So Napit have said, well, C3, as long as you can conclude that there is no potential risk of entanglement. Electricians don't know firefighting activities. So how do we know about the risk of entanglement? The problem that, and I, I said this in the webinar, the problem is, you know, with this for electricians in the field, the EICR is too restrictive. You know, it should be C2 because it's potentially dangerous. I don't want to see to it because five years ago when I came here and had the same problem, I didn't. Uh, and, you know, the, reg, the regs are supposed to not be retrospective. This one has to be considered in some yeah. regard of retrospective mm-hmm. because of the point of the regulation. Um but C2-ing it is going to be, you know, very unfavoured with electricians. So they want to C3 it, but C3 it doesn't conclude the actual, you know, doesn't control the risk. So we need to have some assistance here, some kind of, the guys in the webinar said we need some kind of asbestos register equivalent where, uh, you know, the owner of a building could be aware of the wiring systems and then have a strategy to improve them over a period of time. And then fundamentally fire authorities can be alerted of any specific areas or any specific um, parts that could be of increased level of risk. The way we have the EICR right now, it doesn't actually allow us to properly handle this. Um, because again, C2 unsatisfactory is too, is too restrictive. We should be able to C2 it, but still, you know, potentially give a satisfactory report for a client if there's no other foreseen risk and give them some other level of control, some other kind of support, risk assessment, something. Yeah, because what we've got right now is just too restrictive. Paul is really reading something. Mm-hmm. He's like, <laughs> I am. I am speed reading two hundred eighty-six pages of the Fennel report from London Underground, All and right. it's just damning. Chapter thirteen is a really good read, um, and it's the lessons learned, and it and it just. It starts off really kind and it just destroys London Underground's management. Mm-hmm. And it literally systematically talks about Section 3 of Health and Safety at Work Act, duty of an employer to conduct undertakings in a way to ensure persons in his employment, which may mm. be affected, are this not is, exposed to risks. This is exactly what we covered on the webinar where we said, right, I'm going to poke my head above a ceiling. I'm going to look at my low voltage electrical installation and I'm going to look to the right. I'm going to see data cabling, fire alarm that's completely unsupported. But I'm going to say, oh, that's outside my scope, and I'm not going to report it. As you just quoted there, Paul, under the actual Health and Safety Work Act, you know, there should be a duty for me to actually report that risk 
to the well, client. There is most certainly a duty. And the trouble is this report, um, it talks about the ethos of London Underground and past fires at Oxford Circus, which in all fairness, I completely forgotten about because there were previous fires. Um, and it, it's it's frightening to be honest with you because it, it, it is, I mean, this line here, page 119, it says, the evidence of the documents produced by London Underground, the evidence of the witnesses showed that London Underground was not justified in making such unqualified assumptions. Mm. They were as complacent as hell. There was a toxic culture in London Underground of just that'll do, that'll do, that'll do. We've recently seen the emergence of potential toxic culture within the cladding of buildings, high-rise building refurbishments. And it's fairly evident to anyone who works in construction, there are many, many toxic elements to the construction industry from the bullying culture of management, the programme, risk and cost being key, um, culture, the procurement strategy, culture of unqualified and incompetent persons procuring the cheapest over the quality or the safety or the compliance. Um, all it needs is one mistake made in a document two years ago, and you can end up with, um, and I'm going to quote the IET president here, um, uh, Dr. Peter Bonenfield, who stood up at his president's address and he went, who in God's name thought it was a good idea to wrap a high-rise building in a cladding that could catch fire? Loads of people, evidently. Mm. And do you know what? That hits the nail on the head because uh, years ago, nobody would have batted an eyelid to an, to an extent. A lot, of, mm. a lot of people would have frowned. Now, it's just you wouldn't ever do that. How many buildings in this country have we got? How much work is being done to action it? Not much. How many residents are getting told they're going to have to pay for all this? You know, there is a, we, we live in a compensation culture, but where's the where's the reciprocity on the people that have done the work that made the mistakes that the um, were, the companies that quote the underground report were not justified in making such unqualified assumptions? It's 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 frightening stuff. And I, I do think that statement alone can apply to a lot of the electricians that are arguing. They are they are literally unjustified. So they're not justified in making unqualified assumptions. Mm. Again, I said to the guys on, on I nearly had an argument in my own Facebook group. It got to that point. There were a few of us in there that were kind of trying to, you know, but some guys obviously hadn't seen the webinar, but they were still trying to say, oh, you know, you know, screws don't get that hot. It's fine, not a problem. And I, you know, all I was, I basically said, look, show me the thing that says this. You know, but it's just well, just just, just very quickly. Um, so from the Fennel report, one of the things that came out of the Fennel report, and and uh, we used to do fire training. So to yeah. work on London Underground, you had to, if you were a contractor, you had to have used a fire extinguisher, which yeah. was great because you had to physically hold it and it yeah. was controlled, and you had to do a fire watchman, and there was all different grades of fire engineering knowledge. But um, for those who are listening, and we could probably do a podcast on this alone. Um, there's obviously part B of the building regulations deals with fire safety. Then you've got BS 9999, and then there's a suite of other standards there. You've then obviously got a quantitative risk assessment. Um, a lot of people seem to think that fire safety is about the fire risk assessment done under the regulatory reform order. And the regulatory reform order is for existing infrastructure. If you're doing new or an alteration to an existing, you will apply fire engineering, which mm -hmm. is that applied judgment based on evacuation property of persons etc the trouble is they never go into that level of detail and i genuinely think there needs to be a line item in part b or bs 999 that clearly says building services shall be protected or shall be installed in such a manner that they protect firefighting and rescue personnel I think that's where it needs to sit, not in the wiring regulation. I mean, well, the wiring regulations can repeat it, but if it appeared in BS 999 and Part B, you wouldn't get as much arguments because the building inspectors, the clerk of works would be on it. They'd be on it in a heartbeat. And and if you look, um, I'm going to... It's, it's, worth, it's worth mentioning the actual Rule 43 letter, the actual coroner did request it be pushed to the building regulations. Oh, well, there you go. It was actually requested to be introduced to the building regulations, but it's in BS 7671 where it ended up. And there's me showing the fact that I haven't watched your webinar yet. Um, sorry about that, Dave, but no worries, I've been busy working. Don't worry, I will watch yeah. it. Just on a quick one, if anyone's listening, there's a document called G371A. It's station planning standard and guidelines. And if you just type fire into it alone, it appears 49 times. Um, so just, just if you're ever designing a new railway station, you'll read word, word sentences like this. 
and, and it, I'm quoting it directly, direct access to station operations room from the street via a fire protected route for use by emergency services. Now, I wonder why they would put that in to a guidance note for designers and architects, because hopefully the architects will go, well, what's fire protected? Do we need to ensure that all the systems and services and the physical structure can resist fire for X amount of time? And on railways, what you'll find is, especially London Underground, you'll find that switch rooms have a minimum of 60 minutes to two hours, substations are four hours, and anything that's evacuation route should be a minimum of two or four hours. Um, there's some rules of thumb. You go on National Rail. I could do a podcast on how bad National Rail was. Um, although on a positive note, I have noticed in the last decade, the National Rail, I'm not going to use the term Network Rail because National Rail includes Network Rail and train operators. They are finally getting used to the idea of we must be fully compliant and they're leveling up their approach, their attitude. And my job, I'm one of my parts of my job is I'm the fire responsible person for my railway, every station, uh, brand new fire alarm panels, fire rate fixings everywhere, no cheap half a job anywhere, do it properly, do it once, fire compartmentation, fire doors, enhance the safety, the protection, the compartmentation. Um, you don't have to be um, just accept substandard all the time. Obviously, some people say, well, I haven't got the money. Well, I can't help you there. Um, Final thoughts, chaps, because we've been going on for a bit. We could do another one on this, to be honest, Sugar. I'll just add, you just said they ain't got the money. We need to remember that our engineering judgment should always be to give the client the best amount of our engineering judgment. Whilst, And I've done this before, where I appreciate that clients may not have a deep, deep purse of funds. I will still give them the same engineering judgment. And I'll then give them an element of risk control for them to make suitable engineering decisions over a strategy. Just because something is expensive to fix doesn't mean it doesn't now need to be fixed. It means we need to be honest with the client. We need to make the right recommendations, give the client confidence in what they know, and give them an approach, give them a strategy, give them something to work with. Well, is it fair to say that you have an obligation um, as a competent person well, to, who to else provide will? competent advice? Yeah, who else will? Yep. Uh, John, um, any final thoughts? I've got one, um, but I thought I'd throw you first. Yeah, I think this, uh, certainly for if you're installing stuff, I think this idea that plasterboard and this 30 minutes thing, it's not really particularly relevant because, as we've already discussed there, the fact it might last 30 minutes in some kind of controlled test that was done in a sort of a special place under certain conditions doesn't really count for anything. 30 minutes isn't long enough anyway. And I say, if you're going to put water and things in from a fire hose or whatever, it's going to be two minutes or something, and it's going to be on the floor with all the cables. So relying on things like plasterboard to hold up your cables isn't good enough. So you're going to have to use actual proper fixings above your plasterboard or whatever else you've got. So it's going to, otherwise it's going to be on the floor and uh, obviously tangling up in people. Completely agree, buddy. Um, so for those listening, um, just want to want to cover two Quick one-liners if you're looking for that discharge. So regulation five of electricity work regs, strength and capability of electrical equipment. Um, no equipment should be put into use where its strength and capability may be exceeded in a way to give rise to danger. And regulation six, adverse of or hazardous environments, which deals with electrical equipment which reasonably foreseeably be exposed to damage, effects of weather, effects of wet, dirty, any flammable or explosive substances. Um, so you might want to consider that. But more importantly, as a go-home moment, regulation 29 it's every electrician's favourite regulation, whether you know it or not, mm -hmm. defence. And any proceeding for an offence consistent of a contravention of any regulation, and it 5, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, competence, um, it shall be a defence for a person to prove you take all reasonable steps to avoid the commission, uh, commission of that offence. So you need to make sure that you have covered your arse. And you yeah. firstly have to do the engineering judgment, the engineering logic, put it into writing, discharge your duty of care, quote the regulation. And I guarantee you, because I've done this, I've done this loads of times. Every single time in my career, I have discharged my duty of care and pushed it up. They've always found the money. Yeah. So um, on that note, Ian, your last thoughts to wind this up with and then we'll finish. Yeah, but I think I just agree with all your last thoughts, to be honest with you. It's all very sensible stuff. We're all engineers. We're, we're competent, capable people. Every spark should be a risk assessment machine looking at every single installation separately. 
its own benefits, merits, risks, everything else. Um, yeah, common common sense above all. Indeed. Uh, and on that note, cool. Ian, where can we find you, sir? Social media platforms and all. Yeah, absolutely. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, absolutely, you can find Linian on Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram. I believe now as well, but I am too old to be operating that one, so don't don't blame me for that. Okay. Um, I struggle yeah, with it too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it. You can find us online. Okay, can I just can I just can I just add before you find say the right last goodbye? We've talked briefly about the fires. We've talked briefly about firefighting activities. I don't normally say go check out Spark and Ninja stuff, but with this one, go on the YouTube, go check out the webinar. It's called uh, Premature Collapse, a Firefighter's Perspective. Yeah, uh, We'll probably edit this video. We'll probably put a little card on it for the YouTube channel. But do check it out. It's like an hour and a half long, but I go through all of that, and I've probably just stolen Paul's, Paul's last line. Well, you're doing me out of a job because Sorry. my last line was going to be, <laughs> there's this really competent bloke that I know called Spark and Ninja. Sorry, mate. James is twin. And yes, if you if you do exactly what Dave has just said, but at the end of this, while we're talking, the cards will appear it's probably mm -hmm. right in front of my face, actually, the green logo. Um, so, yeah, please check out Dave's webinar, which was awesome. And I'm going to be watching it tonight. I should have watched it before this, but hey, I was working, dealing with issues. Um, chaps, as always, pleasure. Ian, thank you very much. Um, thank you. Probably worthwhile having you back again so we can continue this debate. Once we get the feedback from people, please... Um, if yeah. you like it, share it, comment, email us, info at e5group.org.uk. John, God bless you. Thank you very much. Dave, thank you very much. Ian. Always a pleasure. And until the next one, take care of yourself and each other. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.